This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome everyone to another edition of The Book Report. The Book Report! Again, I don't know if it's singular or plural. I say The Book Report. Uh, and I am Adam. This is the voice of Adam you're hearing right now. Mmm. Nice and bassy. <laughs> like syrup coming out the mouth. Oh, molasses. And that voice you're hearing is our master teacher. Hello. Welcome, Kate. Hello, hello. <laughs> what a great start to this stupid episode. I know. It is in that very moment, though, that I realize that I'm going to miss doing the voice of Morlock. Just mm, yes, I forgot you only you only really did him for one episode or maybe two. Two episodes, yeah. But I forgot how just quickly very he's gone. I know, and I spent <laughs> spent time shame. thinking about how will I shape this carpetbagger of a of a voice. And you did it really well. It was a lot of fun. Did I give you that note? Did I give you that suggestion? In your bullet points, because, uh, yeah, you were you were giving me ideas for your backstory. Yeah. And you said, like, this whoever this Morlock would be is a carpetbagger. So there, there it is. There's my Ed Helms office version of yeah. the southern voice. Or, or what's the, uh, what was the rooster? Was it Foghorn Leghorn? I'll say, I'll say, I'll say. <laughs> yes. All right, guys, everyone, we are here. You guys are here. We are, are here. here. You are here. You are also here because we want to talk about The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Yes. So, Caitlin, can you go ahead and put on your master teacher hat and please educate all of us on the history uh, of H.G. Wells and The Time Machine? Sure. Let me grab my, my pointy witch hat. That yeah. is my uh, teacher hat of choice and put that atop my head. Yes. Just a scant, so you can only see one eye. Um, and yeah, so just so some background on the time machine before we then bring you in, because this this was your character's mm-hmm. backstory. Yeah. Uh, but yes, time machine. Uh, since this is in, I always want to call it open licensing. I still Public have domain. such a hard time with this. Let's just call it that then. No. Open licensing. It's open licensing. 5E. I wonder why edition. your mind goes there. I have Is no that, idea. Yeah. But anyways, since it's public domain, it's an old boy. So this was written and published uh, by H.G. Wells in 1895. Originally a post-apocalyptic science fiction novella. So it's on the shorter terms, which will be one of my selling points for those of you who mm-hmm. I try to get to read it. Anyways, a basic summary of like some big plot points without giving every single detail away um, is that the story opens with a group of men sitting down after dinner, listening to an unnamed time traveler tell his story where he has just gotten back um, where his time machine that he created had rocketed him into the future, specifically the year 802701. 
And if you just finished our story, that should be a familiar number to you. Uh, but the the in this future, uh, he finds that there's two types of people. One group, uh, which is kind of white and ape-like and live underground and are more of like the 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 brains of the situation, but horribly carnivorous and just basically antagonistic. He calls the Morlocks. And then the the frail, peaceful, uh, kind of beautiful people. Fruit lovers. Yeah, who, who eat nothing but fruit, basically, um, who live above ground are the Eloys. Um, and so... At some point, the Morlocks take his time machine and they lead him basically to explore their tunnels. The Morlocks do. Um, and this is where he learns that they, like, they are straight up feeding on the Eloy. Um, so just really driving forward this, this antagonistic force behind the Morlocks. And this time traveler also befriends a specific Eloy named Weena. Um, and so, long story short, Morlocks scare the shit out of the time traveler. He takes Weena into hiding, tries to save her from them. And it's really here we see that the intelligence that the Morlocks show is a result of and response to danger. And so the Eloys, who live an easy life in this future, um, lack intelligence because they have no need for it. And so a bunch of stuff ensues. He returns exhausted to the present time. And this is where he's telling us. It. So it's, it's a bookend story. Mm-hmm. It, it ends where it begins. Um, but the cool thing about this is that this story by H.G. Wells is credited with popularizing the concept of time travel using a device specifically designed to travel forwards and backwards through time. And it's even Wells who coins the term time machine. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, a grasp on uh, at this time, the late 1800s, uh, if there was any kind of was, was science fiction that big? Well, yeah. I mean, we okay. One of our earlier book reports on Frankenstein, yeah. book report number one, Frankenstein, and what is that like eighteen eighteen in oh, the eighteen teens? Um, that was considered the the first gotcha. of the science okay, fiction. Okay, so science stories. fiction wasn't a, a new thing at this point. It was a brand means. new, but the the concept of a machine used to travel through time was newer. Uh, so it, it, but it wasn't even his first go around with time traveling in a story. I mean, while he was in college, Wells wrote, um, I guess like a, a certain tale he called the chronic Argonauts, um, where it's a tale about an Englishman, Dr. Moses Nebo Gipfel. Okay. It's one of those names that are words you see only in writing. And it's the first time I'm attempting to say it. And then you're just like, here we go. But Dr. Moses, basically. Um, And this guy builds a time machine at his isolated home and he disappears along with a local pastor, Reverend Moses Ulysses Cook. Um, And they go away and villagers try to invade his home and find only the remains of this machine. So that's like kind of like a mini unfinished story that he started in college. Oh, cool. And uh, less than 10 years later, he writes The Time Machine. So it's pretty cool. Um, it, even now, it's seen as a story that is furthering the science fiction dystopian uh, genre that had been burgeoning at this time in the late 1800s, gaining in popularity. I mean, he's... H.G. Wells is publishing at the same time as Jules Verne. Um, so you, you have a lot of these epic 
science fiction based adventure stories you know either a thousand leagues under the sea mm-hmm. around the world in 80 days um later on you have war of the worlds by hg wells as well so a lot of this is going on but there's an allegorical element to it uh where if we look at the eloys above ground living an easy life kind of just like very soft and fragile and beautiful morlocks hardened um twisted living below ground um, the ones who have to like live based off of fear and pain and therefore like evolving to have like super brains. Um, but if you read that as an allegory, you can see it based off of actually Wells's personal experiences in his own childhood um, because he grew up in the working class who in the late 1700s, early 1800s, literally uh, spent a lot of time underground. Um, and so he's kind of pulling from his own life in a cool way. His own family would spend most of their time in a dark basement kitchen when not being occupied in their father's shop. And later, his own mother would work as a housekeeper in a house with tunnels below where the staff and servants lived in underground quarters. Interesting. So he, he, there's a lot of almost, um, I guess you could say social justice uh, and awareness as an allegorical element to the story. So it's not just a fantastical, what if we Mm -hmm. could travel in time and this might be the future, but just looking at, okay, what are, what are possibilities of England, which is very class oriented. And if you striate those two and, you know, see the direction they go, how that can lead to the downfall of mankind or make it just turn in on itself. Yeah. What do you, Hmm. I have a couple of questions, but to start, because you're talking about the allegorical aspects of Wells' writing in The Time Machine. Uh-huh. I, I don't know, because when I was reading it, and that was a while ago now, months ago, I don't know why I, I thought that the Eloys were supposed to be the higher class and supposed to be like this blissful ignorance with like the lower class kept underneath turning and being more brutish and like cannibalizing them but it sounds like maybe that's not what he was going for it sounds like he was making them more of the intellectual ones you said below and they're more of like the the planners and yeah it's kind of it's, it's interesting because the the morlocks are clearly antagonistic in here they're, yes. they're the ones that we're supposed to fear and and loathe but we're also supposed to kind of pity it mm-hmm. um, because yes they they are feeding on the eloys um, there, there there seemed to be a very clear class kind of there is there's is, a class which, distinction which here. it sounds like yeah. you're saying what's kind of he kind of grew up in uh he witnessed and was and was Trying to emphasize here, mm-hmm. okay. But the Eloys themselves, even though like they live a life of leisure and, and be just being carefree, they're also just they have little to no language and yes, little to no awareness dim. of how like they get through life. Yes, you know when he first stumbles upon Weena, she's drowning, right? Drowning in pretty much easy to swim water that yeah. she probably could just stand up in. Yeah. Uh, so it it is. A very simple existence. Mm-hmm. So they have become kind of like livestock, but uh, living a life of luxury. It's hard when you're reading the book because I didn't really feel myself siding with, well, I guess I wasn't siding with the cannibals, but mm-hmm. I didn't like the Eloys either. No. They were uh, flawed in their own ways. It's like I didn't really like anybody. And then you follow... The protagonist does he does he have a name? He's never named. Okay. He's just called the time traveler. He just seems caught up in these two sects of people that are all equally terrible. I guess exactly. Yeah. So we we're kind of. 
I, I found myself in reading this sympathizing both sides, uh, but clearly seeing one one of the two sides, the Morlocks just falling and depraved. Right, oh, right, for mm-hmm. sure. So it, that that's kind of the basic gist of it. It is a it's it's a it was a quick read. Uh, it was quick. it was one of the easier ones for me to kind of read through and prep for this this adventure. Is it longer than Gatsby? Or about is the same? Because that's a novella it felt too, the isn't it? Same. Yeah, Gatsby is a novella as well. For for my sake, real quick, uh, you're you're touching on it a little bit earlier. I know I, what I really appreciate and love is is knowing where a book kind of lays in the grand scheme of things uh, in a, in a mm. line of mm-hmm. of history. Amongst other books we've done, I'm not I'm not asking for specific dates that you would remember off the top of your head, but with the other previous books we've done so far, where does this one? rest in the timeline you mentioned frankenstein was probably early 1800s oh yeah this is like Frankenstein's definitely early 1800s where is we did a couple dickens where's dickens at Ooh, where is dickens at Uh oh i'm throwing off the where in the dickens is dickens uh we did oliver twist and oliver twist would have been 1838 so okay so after this is well after that i mean this is like yeah, this is this is. I would think this would be closer in time frame to Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, Moby Dick. Where's that one? Kind of I'm looking it up real quick. All right, <laughs> my past ones. This is. is <laughs> I'll Google. I'll you Google always with end you. up like testing like, me. You're yes, like, what I'm, is it? I want to trust your knowledge. I guess it's unfair because like when I get asked film questions, there's a lot less <laughs> timeline to go off of. Yeah. What are you, what are you looking would, up? I'm looking for for Moby. Dick. Moby Dick, eighteen fifty one. Thank you. And then what was the other one? Count Count of Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo, uh, eighteen forty four. So a okay. lot of like er- early is, to mid eighteen so hundreds. This is definitely like a later one for okay. us. Yeah, I say probably like with maybe it's the second newest. A long have, oh, well, with Gatsby. Yeah, if Gatsby Gatsby's is 1920s? like the latest. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry to stop down. I just, I like knowing where things kind of lay in a, mm-hmm. I like knowing what influences other works and what are people building off of. Yeah. And, because and so I, many... I know for a fact, like this is in the later ends because like, for example, one, one thing I learned about H.G. Wells is that like he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times, oh, wow. but never won. And uh, he... Well, just to be nominated. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, just, just to, to be, be nominated. nominated. Uh, and two of those times were, I think, like 1921, the 1933. Um, so they, they were later on. So, you know, he's, he's pretty young when he's writing and publishing yeah, you uh, said The Time was, Machine. You said Time Machine was like 10 years out of college? Less than 10 years. And yeah. college, was that younger for them than it is for us now? Not necessarily. Oh, okay. Not necessarily. So I'm just saying, like, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't even 30 yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Well. So with that said, he, he's really cool to look at. I mean, he's known as, what is, he's known as a futurist. Um, so he, many of his works were utopian or dystopian, but works that were meant to look at the future, um, trying to foresee the advent of many inventions and imagining subjects we now commonly know of today. Um, Oftentimes, like, his stories are pretty cool in that they installed commonplace details alongside, like, a single extraordinary assumption, which is perfect for science fiction. Just asking one what if. 
Okay, so like the invisible man. What if a person could be invisible? Exactly, but everything else is the same. Gotcha. You know, what if we could travel in time, but when we came back, it didn't change anything. We just got to see it. Gotcha. Yeah, so that that is a key element, especially of early science fiction, where it's not trying to do huge world building like in fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's just asking what if about one detail you throw that we one take for aspect granted. in there. Gotcha. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Very kind of almost like Black Mirror-ish in the sense of it is, yeah. if everything else is modern or feels so, but there's one thing and then seeing how everything else twists around that. Yeah. And, and you see that with a lot of, especially that that's what makes it either dystopian or utopian and Black Mirror, super dystopian. Uh, and, and it usually carries it out to the umpteenth degree of if we change this one detail, here's how everything else changes around it. Uh, master teacher, again, I, I, I just like to ask sidebar questions because this is the kind of things I would be doing at home also because qu- uh, thoughts pop in my mind and I don't want to forget them. So <laughs> forgive me for diverting you. No, oh, you're good. This is what this is. This is a conversation. You mentioned earlier about how the, the popular popularization of dystopians on the flip side of that has there ever been like a popularization of utopias like books because I, I really i feel like every science fiction or dystopia it, it, it always tends to be dystopian I, I, I was just wondering if you had any examples of utopian books or why dystopian is just so much more popular is it because you can get across a message or a warning of, of for the future it's really hard to find any popularization on a larger scale. I mean, you have the famous book Utopia by Thomas More in 1551, but that even itself is a satire. Okay. It's looking at like how political systems are in place and what if we change these certain things and seeing where that could go. But it's still kind of tongue in cheek. And you don't really see a rise in interest in utopias really until... I would say late 60s, early 70s, 1960s, 1970s, uh, with the kind of larger movements that are going on, I can say at the U.S. level of small conclaves of people, like we're going to build our own utopias, we're going to have our own kind of hippie sanctums Mm. of redoing the world, which kind of was in pushing back against this um, breadth of distrust against authority figures, against government. So it's like, what, what can we do to change the world? Let's just start small, start local. So you start to have smaller pamphlets or movements or essays that are written with utopian leanings, but you don't really see that too much in fiction taking off. I don't know if there's just something in the human mind is like, I can't really buy into this, or I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It can't be that this perfect. Well, I guess stories are built around conflict and dystopians have conflict baked into them where utopians maybe is like a perfect, I wonder, unless it's like the fear of losing a utopia, a lot of it, I wonder, it's, I wonder if it just lacks drama and stakes. Well, it's almost like it's the end state, right? It's, it's, it, maybe it's the end goal, but if you start off with the goals already achieved, yeah. where's, yeah, where yeah. is the story? I was just curious about that. We've talked mm-hmm. about dystopians a, a few couple times now. Yeah, but I remember it was it was when I, what was the name of that movie? Um, oh, describe uh, it to me. It's, it's starring Drew Barrymore. Uh, it's like the untold story of Cinderella. Oh, Never After? Ever After. Ever After. I just remember when that came out as, you know, when I was young, I was just obsessed with that, mm-hmm. that movie. And the main character 
got a hold of Thomas More's Utopia. And so I, of course, wanted to read this book from 1551 as well. And so I remember reading is like, this is it. Oh. And then studying it again in college uh, for a political science theory course and, and the philosophies around that. And just, yeah, being very underwhelmed. Mm. Gotcha. All right. Well, maybe maybe uh, we can tell a utopian story at some point. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Uh, anything else interesting about you? So you talked about the book a little bit and we'll come back mm-hmm. to that. But anything else interesting about H.G. Wells just as a as a man, as a writer? I, I didn't really find anything else that was just like, did you guys know this? I, gotcha. I do know. I, there's like a rumor that he tried to build his own time machine. Really? Like kind of as he was researching writing this book or just kind of really getting into it i totally get it like you physicist or no no but he he was figuring out like if i'm going to describe this contraption what would it look like or how would i yes and and he started to create the framework for it and made something he didn't actually make something that worked but he made something that looked cool do you remember any any descriptors in the book about the time machine because i really don't i don't know that that is one that is one thing i absolutely love in this book and I'm, I, if you want we can enter into the why should we read this book because yeah, I have it in that section Segway. let's do okay. it <laughs> so why read this book yes um, so yeah this book remains a classic in both science fiction and dystopian literature for good reasons and I'll give you two I'll give you like my two biggies okay. is, is when I was reading this I really appreciated it about it um, first it has to do with what we were just talking about this book book hg wells leaves room for imagination and interpretation which i really appreciate in a writer so for example here's the description of the time machine which if you're paying attention to our thing might sound familiar the description is to our thing being our podcast yeah sorry to to, to our thing we have going on here aka our podcast um, but we're told that this magical machine sports crystalline bars a brass rail rounded levers and Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory. Parts had certainly been filed or sawn out of rock crystal. Like, that's it. And so I took that description, which is pretty cool in, yeah. in, its, in its brevity, but still gives you specific components. And I used that to describe the quill. Oh. So the, if you go back to the scene where you are going into Eloy's room after you, know, you find she's been taken and you catch a glimpse of her quill that is on the table, I use the description of the components of the time machine to describe this specific quill because I'm like, this is so broad That's awesome. that I could apply it to really anything. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's beautiful when you look at it. Um even look I mean, he never names the time traveler, which is actually well used in the eighteen hundreds because they didn't really like to always a lot of authors Poe exa- specifically did not like to name either the narrator or the protagonist because they wanted an easy way for you, the reader, to connect to put yourself so you're, in it's their an shoes. Every man. Yeah, so the time traveler. Um, but this is all it says at the very beginning. The time traveler, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His pale gray eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. This is how the main character is introduced to us, and that's pretty much it. Hmm. So I took that description, and that is how at the very beginning of The Time Machine, I am describing Arthur Featherfoot. Oh, great. Um, when we first see him, because just as at the beginning of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, the, their main character is telling a story to a gathering of people of dinner, 
we open up with Bertram coming in to seeing Arthur telling a story uh, to oh, people so gathered the ve- at his the home for Arthur. Of the for Macbeth Ravenswick. storyline. Yes, yes, yes. That's yes, where that one. you mm-hmm. tried him. Described him. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. it. And so, really, it leaves room for imagination and interpretation. It doesn't over describe or over explain. It allows the reader to use their own powers of invention to fill in the gaps. And a lot of writers are too afraid to do this. And but it it is and it doesn't come off as lazy and it doesn't come off as too sparse. I didn't have moments in this book for me uh, to being unable to fill in the gaps myself. And I really liked that H.G. Wells trusted me enough. I, I don't, I don't get to see this enough in writing. Yeah. Brevity. I was just thinking the word trust also like trusting your audience to fill in the gaps. Like mm-hmm. don't speed food them everything. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about literature is that there are gaps there. So that way you can fill it in yourself. You make it look like how you want mm-hmm. it to look and put yourself in the character's shoes before you make it so specific. Then, that then no one can picture it or yeah i think that's a great way of writing the second compliment i have for uh the time machine and, and i notice this as a writer and as a reader um is that hg wells in this book it's like he teaches us to think serially which is big for podcast uh creators like you and me um in that this this book, this story was first published in serial form over five months in a British mm. magazine um, known as the New Review. And so as... Are there a, chapters in Time Machine? Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. There, there are. And so each one is really what was published um, in, in each month of the magazine. And so as a serial author, H.G. Wells needed to combine a, compel, a compelling storyline to hold a fickle reader's attention. And combine that with a suspenseful pace and plot to draw repeat readership. So plot and pacing are big in this story. Um, oftentimes, even if you if you jump from um, chapter to chapter, each chapter starts as if it's a previously on. Hmm. Um, but it doesn't get over, it, it's not over inundated with Repetition. details where no. it feels like, okay, I got this, I got this, right. I've had this before. It just, it reminds you as if like you were not there on the previous page, which is important for podcast format as you guys are listening to right now. Um, but even just storytelling in general, keeping your reader aware of what's happening where and still pulling them on, wanting them to be interested in what's happening next. And this, and there's a focus in this story, which is present to future. Um, and it, it creates this honed attention I found on the reader and their experience. So in the time machine, the present is always moving into the future while it's shaped by the past. You're always having scenes which are affecting not just what's going on right there, but it's hearkening to impacts on the future or callbacks to what's already happened mm. in the past, almost from page to page so that you can constantly see scenes being linked to one another. And I really appreciated that uh, with with a story. Um, and, and it doesn't stretch beyond, it doesn't go beyond its welcome. You know, it d- doesn't wear out its welcome. It ends exactly when it needs to. It's nice and short and it's a story that's nice and short. So mm-hmm. it fits. Yeah. This is one of the, the few books that I actually, uh, read in, in preparation and partly that's because I was, and we'll get to that of helping, uh, form the story, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it is really short. It's, it's, it's a fast read. I did an audiobook, which is why I, I wasn't sure about like the written page about chapters or not chapter breaks, but 
It just blows by and... It's less than 100 pages long. Oh, wow. I just double okay. checked. It's 84 pages long. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did the audiobook. It was like four hours. It was yeah. very short. And it's... But there's enough in there that makes it feel chunky. And you could tell that maybe another writer could have made that way, way bigger. But it sounds like Wells introduced the ideas he wanted to introduce. Yeah. Left gaps again for the audience to kind of fill in with their own feelings or bring their own what have you to the table, to the page. And yeah, I, I, I loved it. And there's certain things that you just can't help but in your mind. Like, there's so many just awe moments of the book. I just want to start gushing about the book, but maybe this isn't the time for that. <laughs> Go for it, yeah. As, as someone who maybe in the past year or two has been going through spurts of existential crises, when you read that like, now we've jumped forward and it's the year, what was it, 802? Um, 802, 701. It's just, that just makes your, my skin crawl a little bit. And the eye was just tripping out on the end of the book. I mean, spoilers for a book that's been out for over 120 years. But over 125 years, yeah. <laughs> when he is just zooming into the future... And describing what he's seeing, and you're seeing constellations like die, or the the sun like burn away. But when you see the planet that's like desolate, and I think it was the idea that the Eloys and Morlocks turned into like giant moths and evolved further into like giant moths and crabs. I don't know if I maybe read into that wrongly, but I kind of read like these two these humans split and turned into different species that then met their end as giant moths and. That's part crabs. of the that's part of the thing where you're not quite sure because the time traveler doesn't even know, right. but he does notice how there always seems to be like two this yes. this, this dichotomy of existence. The way he's just describing it, like you said, again, there's enough information there, and he's not being lazy about it. It's just succinct, and he's giving you enough where he's painting kind of broader strokes with some specificity but leaving room in there just enough for you to hold on to and be almost like terrified of of the awe of mm -hmm. it and then you can fill in the rest but I, I remember listening to that chapter like twice back to back because just hearing how he describes it is oh it was so and it was scary so, it was and scary beautiful and, and nightmarish and gorgeous I yeah. mean I I was looking at that language and when I was especially like the times where it was narrative heavy like narration heavy for for me um to be describing like scenes especially like towards the end uh when we were jumping back and forth in time there were just some portions where i'm like i have to figure out a way yes. to get this language i could in. tell us what you were doing when i was like well this is getting trippy the stuff that you're saying i was like this must be near the end or um, i must be when he's just zooming through time are you looking yeah. up an example i'm looking up on yeah um Okay, so it's like the, the time in year 100 after Eloy has passed away eight days ago. And I say, uh, and like blots upon the landscape rise the domed coverings for the Featherfoot family graves. Or in this one, it would be like um, rise the domed coverings over the, the landscape of, of London and how it used mm. to be a city there. Uh, you understand now what all the beauty of the grounds covered. Very pleasant were your days with Eloy, as pleasant, wonderful, and joyful as you could hope for. Um, and then it also goes to... Time seems to slow around you as you look back through the open door. 
As you walk through the emptier halls, you begin to recognize the pretty and familiar architecture, metallic hands running along the banisters in search of dust or disarray. I didn't get to actually say this. Mm. There was a portion where it just it didn't fit. Yeah, you don't want to yeah, so like drown the audience exactly. with these kind of like crazy stuff. You you did another one, I think, when when Bertram and Eloy are in the green porcelain oh, yeah. room. All the, the old like, constellations have gone from the sky. That slow movement, which is imperceptible in a hundred human lifetimes, have long since rearranged them in unfamiliar groupings. But the galaxy, it seems to you, is still the same tattered streamer of stardust as of yore. And amid all these scintillating points of light, one bright planet shines kindly and steadily like the face of an old friend. Yeah, that's, that's all. Great. That's H.G. Wells, yeah, baby. That was that was so cool. So seeing just moments like that where he's trying to describe what it looks like to to race through time and to see the change of eons from human eyes of a Victorian standpoint mm-hmm. is is really cool to to try and grasp. It it was a great book. Uh... I highly recommend it. It was, I mean, I like sci-fi. I dug this book. And even if there's points that maybe it was like, uh, no, I'm not sure if I'm liking this or not. It goes by so fast that like you're, you're just jumping from moment to moment. It really is like. Just totally. And, and you, had, you had lots of reasons to like this book too, because this is what you chose for right. your character, mm-hmm. you know, for each of you. What well, was a gamble? And, Cause I had, I hadn't. <laughs> right. So, so as a background in case, you know, in case you dear reader, dear listener, uh, are, are not in the know. What I asked of, of Adam as well as Kimmy and Aaron is that when they were building their characters to choose a piece of classic literature in public domain right. um, that they would tie their, their character to. And so for Adam, he chose for Bertram the time machine. And so there, I was very interested to know why, why did you choose the time machine for Bertram? Well, it's funny. I think when I was actually making Bertram, I think that at first I didn't pick the time machine. I think at first I was thinking more of Bicentennial Man about the robot who lives for so long with a family and then goes away and then comes back and falls in love with like the daughter. I think that was like the the barest of bones of... Mm-hmm. I haven't even read that book. I just remember the movie. But... uh I think I really didn't have that much of an idea of what I wanted to do with Bertram, honestly, until I, mean, I, I knew bigger things. Like I knew, I mean, again, spoilers, if you haven't listened to the, the time machine arc, what are you doing here? Yeah. I mean, we love that you're here, but also get the hell yeah, out of here. Pause it, and, pause it right yeah, now. And get go, your cute little over. tushy back over there. Listen to the time machine and then we'll meet you back right now. Exactly. Okay. Welcome back. So picking back up. Uh, <laughs> I. Oh, I've lost my complete train of thought. Uh, something along the lines of, oh, I, I knew I knew the bigger things when I was building the character of Bertram years ago, before we started. It's crazy. That's years ago already. But I knew that he probably fell in, he served a family of sorcerers somehow, and he fell in love with one that as they were dying, the gift was the blood, and that's mm-hmm. how he had it. So I knew that from day one, which helped a lot, and I was able to plant stuff about... Uh, abuses that maybe I had from the Featherfoot family, but also mm-hmm. some kindness also, and maybe having fallen in love once. It was great knowing that, uh, getting to pepper that in. Hopefully that's satisfying on a re-listen for anybody who goes back. But then, yeah, I think when you told me 
and it's so hard because again, we, I always, I don't know why I feel like embarrassed or the need to explain it, which I don't, but I feel like D and D at home is usually played with the players know nothing. The DM does everything. Mm -hmm. The players are in the dark, but this is like, we're telling a communal story together. And so you keep us in the dark of a lot, but also you invite us in to help build things, especially if it's our own characters. And so you brought me in and you told me that Bertram, I think you told me a little bit about Lady Macbeth and the attack and how things were going to go and that it was Bertram's turn for his story. And so I thought it'd be great if he was on the fritz, something bad happened maybe. And then when I was just thinking like, what are books that have like robots in it or machines or whatever? And so thinking of the time machine, I was like, wow, it'd be really fascinating just to get his backstory across by being, uh, jumping in time through mm-hmm. memories unstuck in time as i always say because i like slaughterhouse five <laughs> but i was like what a unique way of doing it as opposed to just here's me vomiting information at someone penny had already done her story so well of going back to her home place and having things play out concurrently and we're mm-hmm. catching up as she's also resolving her own demons I didn't want to do something like that because I thought that was done so well. Still maybe my favorite arc of the entire book, uh, series that we've done. So I thought the idea of jumping in time would be so fascinating. So I think that was, that was my leaping off point of wanting to choose this book. And then I read it and I was like, okay, I think we can do this. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the jumping off point. And we can get more into specifics if you want, certainly, yeah. about this. But before I do, I, I just want to make sure I close, I want to slam the door shut or close the book on <laughs> any other kind of things about why they people should read that book before we go jump head first more into our podcast. No, for the sake of brevity, I think like my my two big points on what I really enjoyed about the book is worth it. So you recommend it. You're saying go out there. Run. Definitely. It's a fast one, too. Also the fact that you can like I read this on a uh, I listened to this on a library app on my phone. Yeah, for like free. it's available for free just to listen to it, listen to a good book. So yeah, where do you want to start now that we're at the podcast, the portion of the pot where the part uh now that we're at the part where the book meets the podcast and in creation. Yeah, I guess like well, it's an easy like kind of transitional yeah. areas looking at like some easter eggs how how the book shows up in the show. Yeah. Um, and so my favorite way to do that is naming NPCs. And some of them are, are random, you know, for or Ooh. seem random. Al- allow me, because I think we need a backstep. Because when you allowed me into creating this, mm-hmm. I took on the hat or at least tried to walk in the <laughs> shoes a little bit of the master yeah. teacher. Where in the sense where like I, you gave me allowances of like building things. You, uh, I, as I was reading the time machine, and I wonder if this is your process, maybe this could be, uh, maybe you've already answered this before, but I assume this is how you did your process was that when you, when I'm reading it, I'm looking for names, mm-hmm. I'm looking for places, mm-hmm. I'm looking for items, mm-hmm. I'm looking for any numbers or any kind of Easter eggs, looking anything f- that's a motif that appears yes, multiple a motif times, yeah. looking for... Uh, quotes that are interesting and fascinating. And so as I was reading The Time Machine, it very much was with the lens of what can I do with this? And a lot of that was just writing down notes as I was listening of like, Mm -hmm. okay, Morlocks, Eloy's, Weena, 
802701, the year they were in, which ended up being the the robot the that tries to kill everybody. <laughs> uh, trying to think of any... Uh, oh, at the end, having the giant crabs and the yeah, giant and even moths. even just the the sphinx as well which is you know it and above the, location. the door yeah there, so there's the green a porcelain room as a, as a location, location in yeah. the time machine it was really fun just taking these things and, tra- and even though it's not like well we didn't we didn't do the time machine but there's enough nods in there to the book to it and so that was really fun for me and so yeah i tried to throw as many as i could out there but also there wasn't that many names in the time machine yeah uh, and, and the names i did find i used i you did I maybe used, you used some yeah. that i didn't realize no for example um you know 802701 renames itself um as oh, philby and philby is a right. character um you know one of the one of the friends that's gathered at the beginning listening to this time traveler story there's oh, in this, the present there's this argumentative psychologist with with a shock of red hair and his name is Philby. And so I thought that was interesting because when we designed Morlock, I added like he has this like pompadour of red hair, the shock of red hair. And so that when 802701 is like wearing bits and pieces of Morlock, including like his red bouffant of hair. So it just was a callback to that. Interesting. Of, of that just little many things for me. But um yeah the the race of Eloy replacing that of of the the woman you come to love um which was mother. a choice which at first I was like maybe Weena because Weena is the love interest in the book but I did not like that Ish. name I didn't it's, like and that. it's not really a love interest it's more I mean, just he a tries friendship. to bring he tries to bring her back he oh. tries to save her oh I guess I don't yeah. know why I always naively read like well, because a lot of like her. a lot of the movie iterations too they but he because he he's they're like very childlike and he doesn't really that born sexy yesterday yeah kind of trope. yeah but he's like they, these guys are really dumb <laughs> yeah yeah uh so he her name is weena so that's the name of the mom um the in the timeline that's in the present with awen and penny you know they come across that one elf uh who has their tongue cut out oh yeah uh-huh in a twisted version of like the the magical nda that you guys have signed well you know lord and lady Macbeth have their own version where they cut out your tongue magically and so that person's name is blank um and that was just like a small detail that was mentioned in there but that's the name of one of the people who's who's gathered the their party. newspaper editor who's there at the party um also who was the who was the the woman cratchit mrs watch it that is the time traveler's housekeeper okay so you see her like when he like first gets into the time traveling machine and presses go he sees her like really quickly like come in like just do her little bustling about and cleaning the area and in and out like for multiple days interesting Uh, so yeah that it's just it's a small random thing but just perfect of like the last person you'd expect to be like the the evil mastermind behind anything and so yeah that was a fun name to use uh <laughs> even even richardson uh the dicks of nips and dicks was Ri- nips in the book there was no nips that was that was just a momentary fun <laughs> idiocy by our show <laughs> but richardson is is another person in there in the, the gathering of friends for this this story time you mentioned some quotes you mentioned we mentioned some places we mentioned some other names was there anything else that you want to highlight that we were references from the book any other quotes i don't know if you had any other random quotes 
Uh, that like, weren't just the sweeping of jumping through time. There, there's one where like you, you're at Eloy's bedside, and you know that she's going to die soon. And so I just like mentioned like you're trying to keep the dark thoughts at bay. And so you know I, I use the the direct quote from the novel is I saw the black central shadow of the eclipse sweeping towards me. And so I use that like in an emotional way of like you see that come I didn't even catch you. that. That's great. There's a part where. Penny and Awen um, are first realizing how close all these uh, machines are that are the monitoring machines mm-hmm. where one of them they capture and make their own. Pappy. <laughs> but all these pappies um, are, are in the vicinity. And so I take a quote from the book that just says, the wood behind seemed full of the stir and murmur of a great company. And so, you know, in that portion, he's seen that the Morlocks are like stealing through at night in the in the woods behind him and he's freaking out uh, because he can't see them except their red eyes. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. so here e- even, okay, that's another thing. Uh, the design of the Morlock, uh, the Morlocks, not, not Mr. Morlock himself, but the, the design of the Morlock robots uh, is, is pretty much an antithesis to everything that Bertram is, but it fits in with the book. Like in the book, they're described as these, small ape-like white creatures with red eyes that live underground. And so it's very fitting that Morlock making these these robots in his image would be of diminutive size, so he's a halfling. Um, but, you know, Bertram, who is tall... That's right, baby. ...by design on purpose, um, <laughs> and with... You know, this kind of onyx, jet black uh, metal with golden filigree uh, to him. I, it, it is the very opposite of these small, pale, mm-hmm. twisted things that hunch over, um, never really seen the light of day, uh, are, are not eloquent in their speech, uh, have a very different view of the world above. Yeah. So, yeah, I just. I thought that was great, like even in the design of, I, I don't know if that was on purpose or not, uh, but when you were designing Bertram, I don't know how much you fully realized how much of an antithesis to these Morlocks he is. I think I knew that, I, that Bertram was expertly made to serve such a illustrious family. I think I'm, I definitely wanted to be, I, I, it was on purpose when constructing it that I wanted these Morlocks to be more monstrous, uh, almost like, like in the book where it's, it's, a, it's a twisted version of like a person, like a, a, a hybrid of a monster mm-hmm. human where this is like a monster robots. So I knew enough about that. I knew they wanted to be faulty. I knew, I knew that they were going to be almost deranged robots. So yeah, and, and so I knew I certainly knew the comparison, certain things I didn't pick up on. The, I think the only thing I didn't pick up on until you said it, I think when I was kind of coming up with the idea of Mr. Morlock, this kind of Southern gentleman, that was just, I think one, it was like, what's an accent Caitlin hasn't done yet that I think she'd be able to do. Cause I don't think you'd had a Southern kind of person before. Uh, a little with how I, that just was me kind of mimicking Aaron as Awen when I was being Friar Tuck. Whenever I play Friar Tuck, that's uh, true. That is because I don't know. Now I just have that headcanon as 
these druids, these elven druids, are just kind of country bumpkins. <laughs> these these country boys. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I but so all that to say, when I was making Mister Morlock, that was just a choice, just kind of random happenstance, and also making him a half. It's like maybe he's a halfling. Just, but I seriously didn't have any reasoning behind that. And and then when you mentioned, it's funny that his nemesis is someone is someone small in stature. Because, because also the the Morlocks, I remember them supposed to be like ape like or or whatever. But in my mind, I was picturing like gorillas. I was picturing, uh, like lumbering beasts. I wasn't picturing mm-hmm. tiny, mm-hmm. diminutive kind of things. So when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, but that doesn't seem very scary. But you made it scary, and it, and it worked out how sheer numbers, man. Yeah, I mean, sheer they're, numbers. They're small, but even in the book, like he he's like these. He, I can just like bat them away, like kick at him. But then the, their sheer numbers start to overwhelm him. Mm-hmm. See, and I, I don't know in my mind, another thing about uh, just probably glossing over details when I was doing an audiobook, but I pictured them being big. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like how you pointed out that Bertram's, for whatever reason, whatever character choice I've made, just as it's funny <laughs> that he has such a... Uh, <laughs> a bias against height and wanting to be taller than everybody else that his nemesis was really short was a halfling. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> like, Oh, I didn't think about that. That's funny. Another key detail that you made sure to mention, even I, you, you did this in one of our uh, times where you, I think we're at zero hit points mm. uh, and something oh, I yes. like you guys to do mm-hmm. is I invite you to share you know, when when you're rolling for a death save to to give it just that extra oomph and involve you is to ask you to share just a memory that flashes mm-hmm. before your eyes. And you had planted that very early on of the match. Yes. Of walking amongst in the darkness and seeing blood and oil at my feet. Mm-hmm. So glad that I had that ready. You you said that and I was like, ah. My my biggest worry, I mean, it's it's fine if it's just a memory and that's it it stands alone. That's great. Maybe you can come back to it. But I love it when you can plant something, and so that way it rewards people who want to go back and listen to it again. That they're seeing like, oh, that's what that's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you picked up on. Do you remember? Do you remember uh, at the beginning of Gatsby what Bertram claimed his name was? No, I don't remember. What was it? George Wells. Oh, of course, the writer. Yes, because you're being the. (laughs) Because I was like, what's a reference I could do to what I knew would be my story coming up in a little bit? It was a little foreshadowing of what Bertram's book was going to be. Uh, Yeah, it's fun knowing those things. And and maybe the biggest thing, again, oh my God, second warning if you haven't heard the last episode of (laughs) Time Machine, but we know that our uh, lovable uh, brutish Dr. Frankenstein is back. And. When you and me were just planning out this podcast and what we wanted to do when we were thinking about the first few arcs and maybe what they could be, I thought immediately, what if Dr. Frankenstein built Bertram? Mm-hmm. And that'd be interesting. So even from before episode one that we recorded years ago, I knew that to be the case. And I think we had to figure out a way that he wouldn't recognize me, which was like 100 years later. So I guess that kind of makes sense and why I wouldn't recognize him. But then we were able to plant things where, like, I think when we're in his workshop in episode five, when we're fighting him, mm-hmm. I come across black metal that looks oddly very similar to mine. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And when I was having, when Bertram was having surgery. In Macbeth in, in by Awen. Yeah. Exactly. I was able to 
I love the Bertram building little uh, moment that we had. Mm-hmm. And again, I made a point to quickly interject something myself that I thought of really uh, kind of at the last moment. But I just found a quote from Frankenstein that Victor Frankenstein says about whatever, about trying to inject life into something, an inanimate, inanimate, I cannot say that word, an inanimate object. And so I put that in there again. Yeah, and something I even that added, you don't need like, to have for, it. for my own thing too, I, I even added that, the, that there were celestial markings on the inside yes, of you. Yes, that's right. Knowing yes. that uh, Frankenstein is an Asimar. That's right, mm-hmm. that's right. And it just, as having that foreknowledge when I was designing Frankenstein, as an NPC, I wanted to have elements of him that reflected Bertram mm-hmm. because, you know, I could see him as, as your creator then kind of imbuing you with certain characteristics of him that maybe he didn't even intend. And so the ways you act, I, I wanted to put into how I would role play Frankenstein as well. I don't think I knew that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that where we're both sassy bitches? <laughs> Very. <laughs> and, and when you first see him, he's like sipping on tea and just things like that, where uh, if, I'm hoping that just it will, it will open up and like bloom like a flower in front of you when you see different layers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like we could talk about this all day. I'll, I'll just say it lastly, before we move on to the next section, what was the most difficult thing for you about constructing this time machine arc specifically having Bertram by himself and then Awen and Penny how what was it like having these two side by side running concurrently stories for you I think for me knowing when to jump uh, Mm -hmm. knowing when to jump from scene to scene especially jumping out of a scene with Penny and Awen because I didn't want to like cut anything too short at the same time, not wanting it to go too long. And so knowing like when, when's a good time to pause a scene and jump back to, to wherever I am in Bertram's timeline. Likewise with you, uh, the the one-on-ones there, my hardest time was knowing when do I need to just narrate Yes. versus when do I need to bring you in to improv? And also, if there are roles, when to have you roll? Yeah, that was really hard. I remember, I remember the first episode, we had to cut so much out for what <clears throat> you, the audience, heard because there was so much of like, is this working? Wait, when should you talk? When should I talk? Because mm-hmm. it's like a memory for Bertram, but is he active in it? No, you're leading it, but it's just me. Yeah, it was, I felt clunky for the first episode. And then I feel like by the end of that one, we, we had it figured out. But mm-hmm. it was hard to know when to like just let something end or to, yeah, even rolling was interesting. There's sometimes mm-hmm. I wanted to do something and you're like, you don't have to roll. I was like, well, I want to play D&D. And you're like, but it's a memory and it already happened. And yeah, it was, it was, yeah. it was an interesting thing mm-hmm. to play out. Mm-hmm. I think really, really quick for me, because I, again, I, I had a pretty big hand in, 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 in writing or at least doing the, the bones of, of this one. I was terrified that people wouldn't be able to keep up again, not being an HG Wells myself. Maybe I wasn't trusting my audience enough, <laughs> but I was afraid that jumping in time at different weeks at a time would be confusing and people wouldn't remember where they were or what happened. So I remember I tried to make every 
episode of Bertram's story be about a person. Yeah. Like, I think episode one was about Arthur. Episode two was about Edgar. Episode three... Eloy. Was Eloy. Mm -hmm. And then episode four was... 802701. Okay. Yeah. It was about... Yeah, because I wanted those arcs. Because I wanted... uh, Because I love... Even in the Edgar one... Very dark. That was another trouble. Another thing. As oh, you were kind of writing hard something, to tap into. Yeah, like, that was make very it so hard to dark. tap into. But I, I love how it started off with him as a boy, and then us having a relationship and seeing the certain flowers, and then being abused by him, to then like later seeing him dead, mm-hmm. uh, jumping in time. I, I liked how I tried to focus it, and I hope that that made it more digestible for the audience of having it be just characters at a time for mm-hmm. the most part, hinting at other things but having it be driven by characters at a time totally. and Bertrand's mm-hmm. relationship with them. I think the other kind of like, it might seem silly, but the other biggest thing that I talked to you a ton about, do you know what I'm going to say? No. I was really worried that Bertram and Eloy's relationship would seem creepy. Oh. <laughs> because Bertram, he did, he... <laughs> Because Bertram doesn't age like a human. He always is. He doesn't age. He's mm-hmm. the same. He was born a sassy 40-year-old butler or whatever. <laughs> and so it was like, it's weird that he is kind of... I didn't want him to be in the room during the birth because that seemed weird. I didn't want him changing her diapers or taking care of her as a baby than to fall in love with her later. Right. Yeah. So I think you yeah. and me had to construct a thing where it's like... She needs to be out of there and not be around <laughs> until she comes back as like a woman who didn't grow up knowing him. They had no relationship prior to mm-hmm. that. Because I was really worried if someone would be like, Bertram is like 70 and she's like 15 or yeah. something. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what it's supposed to be. No, it's not like that. You guys know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think keeping them apart until. She was older. I hope, I hope Nate not weird. And maybe no one even thought twice about it. But I just didn't want to put people off or be like, this is creepy or mm-hmm. predatory or anything. But I think, I think you pulled it off really well. And I think that their relationship, I mean, the only time I've pl- cried playing D&D, I thought it ended, <laughs> thought it turned out really well. Yeah, that was, it. hopefully we made it believable, you guys. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, Kate. Well, thank you so much for guiding us through the time machine, the book, and uh, the podcast portion. Mm-hmm. And before we get into the Q and A section, yes, I want to do a quick little uh, stop at a section called the game section. Ooh, where we play quick, I love the game a quick section. Little game. What do you now, got for us today? Well, I told you earlier that I was struggling to think of a game to do, and you mentioned something about an etiquette. An etiquette game, which, sad to say, couldn't find one that I loved. I thought it was a great Ooh. idea, but I couldn't find one. But in keeping with what I did last time during Metamorphosis, when it was like popular <laughs> bugs in pop culture, uh-huh. I'm doing robots. Popular in pop robots in pop culture. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Oh, I don't have Kimmy here to help me. <laughs> I know. I'm going to read a quote from... Hmm, I think these are mostly like TVs and movies. Okay. And it's going to be a quote from like or a, a quote from a uh, a robot, and I want you to tell me 
the name of the robot and the name of the show or the movie that it's from. Okay. So let's see what you can do. Okay. There's 10 of these. Oh, no. Are you, how confident are you feeling in the scale of one I, right now? I think I will be able to get four. I think you'll get half. Okay. You might get tripped up on like the name of the the actual robot itself or the... I think I'll be able to get four like where I get the name of the, the show. And, and the thing. Yeah. yeah. Number one. And I'm going to read it not in character because I feel like that would give it away. Okay. I'm going to try and read it just like I'm reading right now, saying, talking right now. Okay. Number one. Bite my shiny metal ass. Uh, um... Uh-oh, hon. I thought you would get this one. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know it. It's Bender from Futurama. Oh, gosh. Off to a bad start here so far. <laughs> oh, oh, for one. Oh, for one. Number two. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Oh, uh, Stanley Kubrick film? Yep. Uh, the name of the it's... film is... <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Wait, we saw it at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, we did. Uh, Space is Great (laughs) by Stanley Kubrick, starring Daryl the Red Eye. (laughs) Starring Daryl the Red Eye. Oh, my God. Okay, now I have... Oh, Hal. Hal. Hal is the name of the robot. It is. Hal 9000. Technically, but Hal is great. Take, yes. Yeah, give me it. You don't know the give movie? Um, 2001 A Space, Space Odyssey. Odyssey. <laughs> Space is great. Starring <laughs> Daryl the Red Eye. <laughs> okay. My, I think you'll get this one. Ready? Okay. Eve. Oh, uh, the name of the movie is the same as the character. <laughs> and it's. <laughs> Honey, you're scaring me. I'm so tired. Um, oh no, Kimmy! Why is Kimmy not here? She would help me. Caitlin, uh, <laughs> I'm getting scared. It's a Pixar movie, and I can see. Oh, um, Wally! It's Wally. Go. Wally starring Wally. God, I thought it was Eva, but I guess he no. It's just how he says it. Just the way he says it. Yeah. I have zero faith in you at this point. <laughs> my faith was... Oh, my God. I was like a 60, 70% faith down to like a 40%, down to like 20, zero. Oh, no. Number four. So what are you batting to right now? Uh, uh, one for three? One for three, unless you count Howl as a half. So okay. 1.5 for okay, three. Okay. Number four. I have witnessed their capacity for courage. And though we are worlds apart, like us, there's more to them than meets the eye. Transformers. That is Optimus Prime. That's, there you go. You got <laughs> that's that. That's so one. sad. That's I know funny. a Michael Bay film. Yeah. But <laughs> you got it. All right. This one will be a curveball, but if you think about the context of it, maybe you'll get it. Um, number five. Movie idea number two thousand three hundred and five. Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler is trapped on an island and falls in love with a coconut. Movie idea number 2,305. Adam Sandler is trapped on an island and falls in love with a coconut. 
cartoon. It's a cartoon. Is it Family Guy? No, close. I don't know. It is awesome when Cartman dresses up as awesome oh in South Park and people think movie execs think he can pitch movies. <laughs> so they hold him captive and just make him turn out terrible movie ideas. <laughs> All right. Number six. Danger, Will Robinson. God, this is one of those where you've heard it so many times. Is it? The robot. It, I had no idea what the robot's name was. Is it also a cartoon? Uh, no, I believe it was a live action, like 1970s. Is it Lost in Space? Yes, it is. Yeah. And the name of the robot is... Oh, here we go. Arno. Arno. I saw it just being called Robot, but also Robot or B9, but Lost in Space. Good to you. Hey, I got that. You know what? You're actually on track for getting four right, <laughs> which is what you thought you would get. Number seven, you'll be malfunctioning within a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. And don't let me catch you following me, begging for help, because you won't get it. C-3PO, uh, hope. I'll, Just Star a new Wars. hope. That's called Star Wars. Star Wars, A yeah. New Hope. Well Episode done. four. Episode four. I was going to do the, the, the odds of going through a, a whatever. Mm-hmm. But I was like, that's too obvious. Number eight, Hasta la Vista, baby. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator as The Terminator. Yeah, Terminator. There's not a name for the, is it just? Is T-800. He, it's a okay. revamped T-800, I believe. I could be wrong. Uh, listeners out there, if I'm wrong, tell me. It's technically Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Is this the thumbs up guy? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's the thumbs up good guy, the good version as he melts. <laughs> Number nine. Souls don't die. Now I'm going off of just strict internet research on this one because I have not seen this movie and it's a travesty that I have not seen this movie. Bicentennial Man? No. The Iron Giant. Oh, I have seen that. Was there something about like souls don't die? That's why I, I don't remember that exactly, okay. but my God, it made me cry. Was Vin Diesel the so voice of to the... Cry. Yes, that's... Why does that's, Vin Diesel have a voice that's like anytime that Anytime there's like repeat yourself some, some in a gravelly large, tone. Some large oaf. I mean... <laughs> send in Vin you, Diesel. Excuse me, Kimmy, but watch watch the Fast and Furious franchise and it's not that far removed. Yeah. Game recognizes like, Game. game. Words haven't even been invented Oh, yet. my God. All right, last one of this stupid, stupid game. Unless you're Vin Diesel listening right now, and because we, know you, love, you we know you love D&D, uh, come, hey. come be our baby, baby papa, buddy daddy, be Vin, our uncle. Vin, when you're here, hey, you're part of the family, all right? When you're here, family. why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> Familia. All right, number 10. I'm sorry. I know you mean well. You just didn't think it through. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. How is humanity saved if it's not allowed to evolve? Is that Ultron? That's Age right. Age of Ultron? That's right. You got it. Hey, you got like half of them. 
Yay. After a rocky start. I mean, I'm talking rocky <laughs> that start. That scared me. I was like, oh, no. When you didn't oh, know no. Wally, you're like, the Pixar movie. It's one of those moments where we've all had them repeatedly. Where you're like, why is my brain not functioning? There's a part of me locked away somewhere in a fugue state that knows this. <laughs> Please Banging wake up. answer. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I'll go ahead and wrap this up on that same kind of note and just saying that uh, call to action for you all. If you want to help support our show, please consider becoming a patron, uh, Patreon, becoming a patron. Uh, check out our Patreon page. We have so many exclusive rewards. We have an extended version of book reports. We also have after shows that all the cast hangs out yeah. afterwards and we talk about the episode we just recorded. We have Caitlin and Kimmy have a book club where they discuss books and you guys can be mm-hmm. a part of that discussion. We have First Chapter Fridays where we all wrote, uh, alternate reading the first chapter of books that we love. Mm-hmm. And you can have access to my DM notes. That's and, right. And get the module plans for what I do uh, for each of the books. That's right. And and there's some, a couple other things. But the other big one is that there's a discord where you can hang out with other patrons who support the show, other listeners of the Oh Man Man fam, but also the entire cast is on there. Caitlin, oh, yes. Adam, Aaron, and Kimmy were all on there and engaging and love engaging with you, the listeners. So consider becoming that. Check that out. We have links below that you can go and click over and check it out. I mentioned our email at Oh Man Man Show to reach out to us with recommendations of other books. We've had some people reach out lately and with recommendations and just talking about how they're enjoying the show mm-hmm. or how it's inspired them to. Uh, try and incorporate books and D uh, into their own D and D play. And it, it just warms our hearts. Oh my gosh. So much. I, it, yeah, they, <laughs> I'm a sap. I often uh, end up tearing up on, on some of these emails. So yeah, the, the, I read them and they, I just cherish them so much. We really have the best listeners. We love you all so much and we love getting to talk to you and it just, yeah. Sometimes when you're, I, I've mentioned it before, when you're recording these podcasts by yourselves in a room or mm-hmm. in a zoom room, you really feel closed off from the world you're in this kind of bubble by yourself so mm-hmm. it feels good that people are reaching out mm-hmm. and just we know that people are out there listening and enjoying it mm-hmm. uh two last things if you can rate and review us on apple or wherever you listen to the shows that helps just kind of promote our uh, promote our show it helps kind of give um legitimacy for people who haven't heard yeah, of us it's it not just positively us. affects the algorithm in our favor yeah mm-hmm. and people who just see that it just helps so much seeing reviews from our listeners it's uh yeah, it's a great recommendation. Also, a great way you can do it also is by sharing it with your friends because it's one thing when you hear about podcasts from strangers uh, behind a microphone on podcast. It's way different when it's a trusted friend or fam- family member saying that, hey, if you like comedy podcasts, D&D podcasts, if you like, if you like just friends being idiots, if you like literature, all that uh, together, check out of mice and men and monsters so please yes, yes, share yes. it with your friends and family thank you kate so much for uh leading us today through the time machine As another always, arc done dear. uh thank you so much out there for listening and yeah we will see you all and you want to reveal what the next book is oh i think you guys knew it was coming since we're going back to the island mm-hmm. we have a certain theme so we are going to be now on to the adventure of the swiss family robinson that's right so we will see you all back on the island in the next episode Woohoo!
the Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. So this is the end of the world. Pretty weird, right? I'm Hannah. I'm sure you've probably noticed by now. I'm a zombie. Might even be the last one. From the creator of Redmond Born and Cybernautica. I can't exactly control most of the things zombie me does. I'm basically what amounts to a backseat driver in my own body. You learn to kind of just go with it after a while, I think. Like, do I feel bad for eating a family of four when I was new? You bet. Not exactly my favorite memory. <laughs> Hannah is living her best unlife while unknowingly being on a crash course with Callie, an explorer desperately seeking to leave her mark on an American wasteland that seems to be all out of new discoveries. Oh, one might say that it's the comics that got me into this, but between you and me, I'm gonna blame the McSodas. No sense in ruining everything I like in one day. Together, this unlikely pair team up against the dangers of post-apocalyptia. <sighs> This thing is not playing around at all. Shit incoming! Sometimes I miss the old days. Killing zombies for upstart communities, now that was a lot more simple. A lot more ethical, too. Wouldn't you say so? Don't you think it's a little more ethical to kill a zombie than just some stranger on the road? Panapocalypse. A story about love, death, and robots. Just not the Netflix guy.